as influencers, you've got to be certain on who you are for you to provide sanity to someone else. The hardest thing is for a human being to sit by themselves and be at peace, settle yourself. And to do that, oftentimes you have to get outside yourself and just go, what's going on? Can I slow down enough to watch what's going on? And then can I go slow down inside? Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's a question. How do you feel about the word charisma? Does it inspire you? Does it make you think about world leaders or industry icons, people who are able to inspire others with their words and their actions? Or does it make you cringe? Does it make you feel some kind of hollow, like a veneer or a sideshow designed to hide something? Or does it just feel like a superpower that you either do, in which case great, or do not have? Now, the honest, the honest answer for me is probably a mix of all of those things. I've, I've seen charisma, that elusive magnetic quality. I've seen it move mountains. I've seen it raise millions of dollars. I've seen it build entire organizations from nothing but one idea. However, on the flip side, I've also seen the traditional definition of the word charisma, one of flamboyance, volume, and a willingness to kind of put on a show, be responsible for keeping some of the most incredible people, ideas, and companies on the sidelines usually resigned before they've even begun by the mistaken belief that they don't have what it takes to achieve that level of influence, which is a huge amount of power for one very little word. So today's guest takes that word, that word charisma, and turns it inside out. Rather than an attribute that's externally referenced, i.e. what people think of me, the end result I achieve, he believes it to be something that starts from within. He also believes that charisma and influence has very little to do with the words that we say, but rather in the space between the words or the nonverbal cues, as he calls them. In other words, he was quite frankly, just somebody I had to talk to. Michael Grinder has over 40 years experience training thousands of groups known as the pioneer of nonverbal communication. He helps executives and educators assess people accurately, connect with others deeply and build their charisma. He's written 14 books. Yep, you heard it. 14 books. I haven't even got to one yet, which have been translated into seven languages. He's a sought after speaker across seven continents. He was also teacher of the year on three different occasions and a recipient of the 2019 DACH Mediator of the Year. In this conversation, we are going to dive into how to avoid being shot as the messenger of bad news, especially if you're in a leadership position that involves naming, you know, the unpopular elephant in the room, the one thing that everybody knows we need to talk about, but nobody wants to talk about. How do you avoid being associated so closely tied to the message that you and the message become the same thing? How to use your breath as a tool to immediately move your body from fight or flight into a powerful zone of influence. Why the cracks in great works of art hold the key to understanding the two spaces that we need to occupy when lifting our charisma and how we can move between those two spaces. 
the role of planting when it comes to diffusing conflict or igniting possibility. Now, I'm not going to go into this. You'll know what we're talking about when we talk about it. But believe me, this one idea completely changed how I handle difficult conversations at work and at home and also how I present from the stage. And finally, why there should be a school of unlearning when it comes to the stories we tell ourselves about our own ability to influence and the tools we are given, or in many cases not given, to make the impact that we need to make. If you're interested in even more tools from Michael, and you should be, obviously when we're talking about presenting, when we're talking about um, nonverbal cues, there's only so many we can cover in an audio format. However, I cannot recommend highly enough that you check out his newsletter. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's packed full of tools, videos, resources on every single area of this topic of raising your influence, raising your charisma. He's genuinely one of the most generous people that I know in his space and I'll say it again, cannot recommend highly enough that newsletter. While you're listening to this episode, what I'd love you to reflect on, or at least keep at the back of your mind, is this one line that you're going to hear us discuss. And the line is, if you can't give solutions, give sanity. Now, I think that all too often as leaders, as parents, as salespeople, managers, we can fall into the solution trap. The idea that our role is to have all of the answers, to have a clever strategy or the winning words that are just going to make the uncertainty disappear. And the irony, the irony is that more often than not, the people who are looking to you or looking up to you, they're not even listening. They're measuring how you hold yourself. They're reading your body language, your voice, your pauses, and the strength and the certainty of your presence. That, it is my belief that that is charisma. And that is certainly influence. And those are tools that you can learn. So on that note, sit back, cycle on if that's your thing, sharpen your pencil, whatever the iPad version of that is, and get ready for a masterclass from the legend himself, Michael Grinder. podcast, Michael Grinder. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's pleasure. It's such a pleasure to have you. We were just saying off air, um, you know, you have been a legend in my world, in the, you know, in the world of speaking and influence and presenting for so many years. And I'm not quite sure how our paths haven't crossed until now, but they haven't. <laughs> I was so impressed with your concept of uh, influence nation and inside influencers. I actually used it for an upcoming program I'm doing for an Australian sponsor, and it's called Secrets of the Influencer. So you have influenced me. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm going to I'm going to pay very close attention. You probably had an idea that I should have had, but I'm very happy to support yours. Let's let's jump in. You know, one of the things that I love to ask up front with this podcast is a couple of questions that I rotate through, but the one that I'm loving at the moment is I find that interesting people and people who have a radar for game-changing ideas and concepts tend to come across them sooner than anybody else. So, what's it what's an idea that you have come across that's really influenced you recently that you've kind of grabbed hold of and haven't let go. Just this weekend, just this weekend. And it's called the donut theory of economics. And what it is, is trying to figure out the difference between how do you do sustainability for the planet as well as sustainability in terms of people's lives. And this is a tremendous, tremendous idea. And I've just really uh, encouraged people 
just YouTube it, go to Google and just type in donut, <laughs> donut theory and you'll be amazed that. And I happen to be next to one of the cities in the world that is trying to implement it, Portland, Oregon. This, for anybody who's, who's interested in this in this idea, it's um, it's actually a book. It's a book called um, Donut Economics. I've, I've heard about it for a while. And a lot of people were talking about it and are still talking about it as a re- result of COVID-19 because basically... Basically, it's a theory of economics that, as you just beautifully put, it defi- at the moment we look at economics defined very tightly as monet- the monetary system. And it widens the breadth of economics where when we, when we think about economics and how economically healthy a system or a country is, it adds in so many more factors like how healthy is the environment, how healthy are communities. And that, if you look at the asset of a nation or the asset of a community, it adds in other assets which are critically important to the health and well-being and financial well-being of that of that particular structure, but that we never count as an asset. And I would love to know like what happens with Portland, Oregon, because I don't know of a of a city that's actually applying this right now. So that's an incredible one to watch. Amsterdam is probably the leader in terms of implementation. Want to want to watch out for. Well, thank you. That's reminded me actually to go back and restudy donut economics again. But I want to dive in. I want to dive into you, and I want to dive into what we're here to talk about today. And I wanted to do that by going back a long way first, and that's back into the the Roman days. And one of the one of the primary kind of messages that we came that came out of those days was that this theory of don't kill the messenger because you know back in the roman days when you heard bad news anybody that watches a viking show knows that if you're the person walking into the hall with bad news that's the end of your acting career or at least on that show so i want to talk about this thing don't kill the messenger because a part of charismatic leadership a part of being charismatic or holding yourself with presence is separate being able to separate yourself out from the messenger can you just talk a little bit about how we do that i totally understand what you're saying about back greek and roman times you know when the messenger came back to the king if it was bad news the messenger was the sacrificial lamb Literally. To update that, Fisher and Yuri, who have all kinds of books out from Harvard University, getting the yes, getting beyond no, getting it done. They talk about how not to shoot the messenger theoretically. It's it's more win-win negotiation. Because I'm interested in nonverbal communication, I want to figure out what are the nonverbals that will support separating the message from the messenger. And charismatic people, influential people, they have to talk elephant. They have to bring out the taboos, but they have to do it in such a way so that they still have receptivity to ever listening to the messenger. I've never heard it put that way before, but I... I love that they have to learn how to talk elephant because when when you teach presentation skills, you know one of the things you teach is, is the ability to take the name the elephant and take it out of the room. But I'd never thought about it in terms of leadership. That your job is to talk about the untalkables. Your job is to take that big elephant that everybody else is ignoring it and put it squarely in the room and deal with it. So your ability to be fluent in elephant, elephant ease. So let's let's dive into that how how does that start how do we learn how to become fluent in flu- i never thought i'd say this fluent in elephant you you're going to find that uh, all communication is made up on a very basic level of the four categories of nonverbal communication 
So what do you look like? That's your facial nonverbals. What does your voice sound like? That's your auditory. Your kinesthetic is your body. And oftentimes we start with body language. Well, sometimes body language includes the face and the voice, and other times it's separated. But there's a fourth category, and that to me is the secret of being a good influencer, and that is breathing. If you can breathe low and talk elephant, then you've made what was previously taboo okay. But you got to make sure you breathe low. And some of times when you're doing that, whether you're in person or over the phone or a video uh, broadcast, you have to take your non-dominant hand and put it on your abdomen and make sure your abdomen is going in and out physically. It's a biofeedback device. And if, you're, if your stomach is going in and out, you're breathing low enough, you're fine. Why? What, like, what difference does, does that make? Because for, for me and many other people, you're just like, quick check. Yep, I'm breathing. I'm, <laughs> I'm here. I'm alive. I got a job to do. So, talk to me. What, what is, why is that so vital? When the oxygen comes in through your mouth and into your lungs and then transfers over into the bloodstream, the number one organ that has to have the oxygen to operate successfully is your brain. And so when you restrict the amount of oxygen that comes in, the organs, your brain, that needs the most of the oxygen that comes in is deprived. So you're going to go back to knee-jerk reactions. So whatever your fight, flight, or freeze of the past will absolutely come present in terms of what's going on right now. So in order to avoid that fight, fight, or freeze, you've got to breathe low. So it's essentially it's a it's a biohack to keep the the smartest part of your brain working at the time when you need yep. it the most. Otherwise, you go to the back of your brain, which is uh, the you know the, the the ape that we had inside of us. It will actually come out, and you're going to be a primate. So the difference between the primate and the human, I want to suggest, is the use of the brain. You cut away the oxygen. We're, we're all primates. Just stick. I want to stick with breathing for a second. Something that that I came across in your work was, again, when we're looking at this charisma question, this this presence question, is a tool that you talked about, which is number one, you have to become congruent, make sure your voice matches your body and face, and then you need to get incongruent. So just walk through those tools for me. My first career was as the uh, classroom teacher. And one of the things I found was I was being incongruent and I didn't mean to. Example, uh, if um, students were running in the hallway, I would run out in the hallway, say, quit running so fast. And of course, my voice was so fast, they would run faster. Um, as a monitor of a test, if I said to the class, this is really an important test, really concentrate and do well, because it'll make a difference in terms of our funding. And what I was doing was I was, if I had any rapport with them at all, they were either running fast out in the hallway or they were breathing too high in the testing room. So I, I said, come on, you, you got to cool it here, fella. That was self-talk. And I had to remind myself how to breathe. And so breathing low makes a huge, huge difference. And I still find that even being at my desk alone and doing working on a document, if I haven't exercised in the last 24 hours, I just cannot concentrate as well. If you haven't exercised. Yeah. 
breathing exercises or physical exercises? Mm. Both. It, 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 you can do meditation, you can do prayer, you can do exercise, but there's got to be some kind of a um, lowering of the metabolism at a rate that allows you to just settle your body. And once your body is settled, now you are really training your respiratory system going into your bloodstream, getting it up to the brain for you to be able to operate well under pressure. So let, let's walk that through. So first of all, if you, if you, in terms of being the messenger that doesn't get shot, we need to be, we need to learn how to talk about the elephants in the room by separating ourselves out from the message. We do that by breathing. And when we breathe, so we develop that congruence between this is my voice and this is my intention versus the energy of the message, which might not be good, but my, my voice and my intent are still very congruent with who I hope to be and how I hope to be in this room. So that's the first bit. Then I, there was this piece that you talked about, which was becoming incongruent. And you use this example about airline pilots, which was actually the moment where I was like, I, I, aha, I get this now. If the situation calls for the average human to be fight, flight, or freeze, and you were congruent, then the pilot on the plane would say, holy crap, look what's coming up. Hey, folks, really, uh, fasten your seatbelts really quickly and say a prayer if you're religious. Well, that'd be congruent. So your first job as a professional, as someone who wants to be charismatic, a thought leader, an influencer, is to be congruent. Make sure that you know how you feel and how you present yourself. But then at some point, you have to be incongruent and you have to go, okay, what is my outcome that I want to convey to the people that are listening to me? And to do that, I have to keep them calm if the situation is tense. And therefore, I have to breathe low, even though my instincts is to breathe high. The second thing, and I think it will help a lot of our listeners, is if you can go visual instead of oral. So if I can take the problem and represent it somehow with visual, whether that be on a piece of paper, on an email, back and forth, and then we can look at that so that that becomes the problem and I can facilitate both of us in terms of how we're going to handle that problem. I want to, I want to shine a, a beam on that for a second, because that is probably one of the tools that I have found to be the most effective. It sounds simple, but the most effective when it comes to having difficult conversations, when it comes to talking elephantese. When you, because usually what happens if you just visualize it, you sit down with another human being, you sit across a table from them and you talk about the issue. And as far as they're concerned, their most primal wiring is concerned. That problem now lives in within me because I have just vocalized it. And so now I am the problem. And then you get into, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, they might be the problem. But as soon as you treat the problem as a third party, as soon as you draw it, or if you don't have access to any tools or materials, and please tell me if I'm paraphrasing this wrong, you don't have any access to any tools or materials, actually hold out your hand and look like, hold your hand up, palm up and look at the, look at your hand as if the problem sits on, on your palm and point to it and look at it so that the other person is looking at your palm and you're like, here is the issue. How are we going to deal with this issue? As soon as you take it out of your body and into its own place, I'm not joking, magical things happen. Your ability to be able to collaborate goes through the roof. Why is that? What What's the power there? Eye contact 
with high breathing goes the fight, flight, or freeze. So if any of our people that are listening in want to just test this, go for a walk and go by a dog that is inside of a fenced area. And as you walk by, don't look at the dog and notice how long the dog barks. Then the second time, go by and look at the dog and see if the dog will bark even longer and louder. And the third time, go by, make eye contact and then talk, hey, you're a really good dog. You're going to find that each of those, eye contact, verbalization, and the physical alignment of your body. So when you do take exactly what you said, the item and put it in your palm of your hand, make sure you turn your body sideways. Because when you're doing it sideways, as opposed to your palm being between you and the other person you're communicating with, it's still connected with you. So the more you can go off to the side, so you're going to find that 90 degree conversation allows you to separate the problem from the solutioners, which are you and the other party. And for anyone that's listening, this works just as well in a relationship, just so just so you know. It does. I mean, I've as we all know, the last 12 months have been challenging on 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 many levels for, you know, and for some catastrophic, for others just deeply unsettling. And to be able to sit down with whoever you're in relationship with and just go, this is how I see the situation we're in and draw it down and then have you both look at it and go, how do we see these lines that connect these two things? How do we move these? That is a deeply different conversation than here's what's up, here's what's going on, and quite frankly, I wish you'd sort it out. It's very different. And if you want, I would even go so far as to take any kind of um, trait or physical uh, ailment that people have and make it a third point. And I'll give you an example. For my wife, partner, and I, her she has a bad back. So we have Valentine's Day coming up, and I'd like to take her out. So what I do is I say, honey, would you check with the third member of our relationship, the back? and see if we have permission for you and I to go out. So if Mickey Mouse can take a little mouse and personify it, you can take a part of your body and you can personify it to make it a third member of the relationship. And again, just elevating that into a different place from a leadership standpoint. I mean, this particular tool works cross-function spectacularly well. And just to take it to another level again, you know, when we're when we're talking about presenting, and you're you're a legend in the world of of presenting with impact, with presence, with holding the attention of human beings and getting them where they want to go in a way that they want to go there. Um, this concept of planting, and I've 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 seen it on stage. I know that the masters do it. I've I've used it myself. I've taught it. That we associate certain places with certain emotions. And what you'll see is when, um, for those who are listening, when you watch a master present, often they'll stand at the same part of the stage whenever they're talking about something they want you to stop doing. And they'll move to another part of the stage whenever they're talking about something that they want you to start doing. And that concept of planting, why is it so powerful? What does it do in our brains? For some reason, for any of us um, that have uh, been in the living room on a weekend and you realize I'm thirsty 
I, I want to go get a glass of water. And you start walking towards, we'll pretend, the kitchen area. But as you are walking, you're distracted by it. Doggone it. There's that paper clip I was looking for. You reach down, you pick it up off the carpet, and you're just so glad that you found it. It could have been something more important than a paper clip. You take two more steps and you can't remember where you're going. So the question is, where is your memory located? It sounds funny, but if you go back and sit down where you had the original thought, you go, oh, yeah, I'm thirsty. So we know that locations are associated with memory or memory is associated with location. So that's why oftentimes when you've been in a relationship and very successfully, you like to reminisce by, honey, do you remember when we, and then you name a place, boom, the emotions come back. So for some reason, locations and memory are associated with each other. So looking at how we use that, that fact, I mean, as you said, you, you started as a teacher and I want to talk a little bit more about your history in a moment. And one of the approaches that you that you developed during that time of learning how to become a teacher was the power approach versus the influence approach. <laughs> so, and that again is is linked to this location issue. So, can you walk us through that? And and this would be for anyone who's in a supervisory management level. I want to talk about parents, babysitters, teachers, anyone who's in a position of responsibility. We can teach you all kinds of management techniques and you could be very good at doing them, but management only works if you have relationships. So the question is just wonderful accountability standards without relationships is an absolute waste of the training that you went through. But you can also go the other way. You can say, I am so good at forming relationships. I'm just an absolute uh, rapport magnet and people just love being with me. If you have high relationships, but no accountability in terms of ambition, what are our goals? That's a waste of relationship. So we want to do both. You want to know when to do power and when to do influence. But you're going to find that the most successful people always have as their first line of strategy, what's my influence? But they are fine being backed up with power. Now, we have just changed in the United States, um, the presidency of the United States, and we're and the outgoing president was power based and didn't have a lot of influence. The incoming one is going to be influence based with a backup of power. So it'll be interesting to see the contrast of the next four years compared to the last four years. If you use influence to start with, you can always go to power. But if you start with power, you don't have anything left. And what does that look like? What this this influence approach, let's, let's take it in the classroom at the moment because it's one of those environments that we're all familiar with. What does an influence approach look like? What are the elements? Number one, you have to take any kind of rules, regulations, and you have to go visual. It has to be on the board somewhere away from where you're teaching. Otherwise, you contaminate that area. If a student is inappropriate, you say the student's name, then you have to make sure you turn with your eyes and hand towards where the rules are. And maybe with your other hand, indicate what number by holding up the appropriate finger, <clears throat> appropriate finger. That was a joke. And indicate what rule that they're violating. Now, we've seen the same thing in factories. You have someone that's not wearing their hard hat. And you have your supervisor all the way across the floor. You yell out and say the person's name, but you've got to have a big sheet of plywood that is up there that has all the rules. 
and they're numbered. And all you do is you indicate what number they're not doing, hard hat. It makes the third point, which is what it's called, third point is there's you, me, and then this third point, it makes the third point the bad guy. It's what officers have done for the last probably 25 to 30 years in both of our countries. In the past, when you pulled over someone who was speeding, the officer would come around and face the driver and say, do you know how fast you were driving? And that led to serious, serious problems. So now the officers, when they come up, they are parallel with you. They do not make eye contact. They look at your steering wheel, peripherally watching your hands. That is influence instead of power. And that ties so beautifully in with what we were just talking about, which is this coming back to this understanding that ideas, rules, concepts, they live somewhere. They live somewhere. They can either live in you as the leader, which then makes you the messenger that will get shot, or they can live separate to you. And just as a living, breathing example of that, when when I had the agency, Something that we I learned how to do because we were managing all different types of personalities from, from CEOs to politicians to authors, media personalities, very different types of personalities. And we learned very quickly that we need a go-to guide here for how we handle conversations, for how we handle it when it goes well, for how we handle it when it doesn't go well. We need it for everybody's psychological safety. And so what we did was we developed these rules and they were it was, we called it an agreement. It was part of the signing of the contract. So when you come into this organization, either as an employee, um, um, one of the talent base, a supplier, you would get a contract of business, very standard, but you would also get a, co- a contract of behavior, a contract agreement of behavior. And that was, this is how we handle things. And then if ever there was an issue, you could sit with somebody next to them, not in front of them, avoiding the fight or flight. And you would pull out the piece of paper and you would say, you know what, when we started this journey together, these are the things that we agreed were important to us. Can we look at this together again? Because I found, I'm feeling like we've gone off track here. It seems that we've, we've moved, we've moved away from it. Externalizing it takes it out of the relationship. And if you want, the easiest way to remember it is if you have two people and they're making eye contact, you have two parties. So it's called two point communication. If you do that externalization, like you were saying, and just get it outside, now you have three points. You're going to find that anytime there's a disagreement and you go two points, the fight, flight, or freeze will absolutely increase. And every time you go to a third point, it's amazing. Even in a business negotiation, if you go oral, you're a negotiator. If you go to the third point, you can facilitate the other person with the rules or regulations. So you're not the negotiator, you're the facilitator. Mm, I love that distinction. I was also just thinking while you were talking, just geometry, you know, how stable a triangle is. So you have three points and you have a relationship that's infinitely more stable. I want to I I change direction for a second and, and, and come back to you and your history and, and how you got here. You, the words that I have here is, you know, hyperactive child, graduated from high school with a fourth grade reading level, went on to earn a master's degree, become nominee for Washington's Teacher of the Year, author of 13 books. I mean, it's easy to read those things and go, wow, that's amazing. But the question that really struck me is there would have been a shift there. 
that needed to take place for you to take those leaps, essentially leaping over the expectations others had of you. And, and I'm guessing you probably had of yourself at some point. What was the shift? Is it is it easy to vocalize? Mm, I, I, you know, I'm blind because I'm inside myself. So uh, my wife would probably have a better description than I would. But I, I think I was just born with lots of things that were against me academically and still are in terms of pronunciation of words. You know, I just think that the good Lord has a great sense of humor to send me to Germany every year for the last three decades and have me try to respectfully pronounce people's names. I mean, that that's really quite, quite funny. So I, I have to work on a regular basis to compensate for what my liabilities are. But the biggest thing I have is I have absolute ambition. And to me, that overcomes so many other things. But I have to be truthful what my own elephants are and how to overcome them. So I'm blessed that uh, my partner, Gail, and we've run our business now for almost 45 years now. She is so kind to me because she was the straight A student in school. I would have been the one who uh, sat behind her and looked over her shoulder to try to cheat during the test. She is so kind that she proofs everything before it goes out the door out the internet window and make sure that it's right. And she just is so sweet in terms of going, she knows how smart I am. I'm just lacking certain skills. So she compensates and helps me a lot. So I tend to, because I'm dyslexic and ADHD and left-handed, uh, even when I'm driving to a new location, I literally have to leave at least 20 to 30 minutes before I need to leave so that I can get lost and then get there in time. You know, that is a life philosophy to to give yourself, to consciously give yourself the space to get lost before you can get found is a podcast episode just in and of itself. Um, it's such an elephant in the room for most people that the hardest part of leading for, for many, the hardest part of presenting, the hardest part of putting forward an idea that's never been heard before or considered in that way before, the hardest part of saying no is the lack of approval, the fear of disapproval. What have you learned in all those years of teaching, which you absolutely hit the nail on the head, to be a teacher is in its essence to not require approval because there's a, a group of people in the world who are never going to approve you. It's going to be teenagers. How do you do that? How do you separate yourself out from that need for approval? I, I have to have it at home. If, if I don't have my relationship with my partner, Gail, is the number one thing in the whole world for me. That's more important than whether I'm a good dad. That's more important if I'm a good grandfather. And I also qualify for great grandfather. I have to make sure that I have a center of my universe that is not influence or touchable by the outside world. And because of that, I can do what one of my heroes, Colin Powell, and his book, My American Journey, talks about. If you take your position and your person and you put it together, when your position falls, your person falls. So it's really important to understand, uh, especially people my age that get ready to retire, they lose their identity. Because they thought that because they could do such and such, and my name is, and my title was, that's who I am. There's got to be part of me that is not part of my position, not part of my achievement. You can also practice for disapproval, though. And that's, you know, that's something that I've seen 
that I've seen recently, which which has been fascinating me, people who have to get up on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people who go and do a comedy class, a stand-up comedy class, to practice being heckled, to practice have people looking at them and not laughing and not responding in the way that they want. You know, people who practice speaking with a face on the wall that's not smiling, this and, you know, teaching, going and talking to teenagers, this concept of, all right, if you want to learn how to deal with disapproval, put yourself in its way and develop those coping mechanisms. Julie, I saw something that was fascinating about 10 years ago, and I'm still almost ready to do the duplication of it. I happened to be at a German um, university, and I was in their uh, artificial intelligence department, and we were looking at this where you get put on what we now call virtual reality goggles. And what they did was they had eight avatars, artificial people, inside that you were looking at, and they were your class. And the people on the outside, the experimenters, they could literally take a knob and turn it so that each of the people that were the avatar students, they could become leaning forward with a big smile and eyes open and nodding their head and just tremendous approval. Or they could withdraw the person and make them start yawning and just really tired and everything. And I was fascinated by what percentage does the people wearing the artificial intelligence goggles have to have for them to feel good enough about themselves? And I thought, wow, what a great way of saying, we're going to teach you how to continue to drive your content. Do that curriculum. Make sure you finish it, even, even if no one is paying attention. Then after you do that, now you know the science of presenting. Now let's get to the art. The art is paying attention to your audience and responding to what makes sense and what doesn't. But the science almost have to precede the idea of the art. And that's what you mean by getting used to rejection. Mm. To train for a no. I've, you know, it's interesting. I've often thought the same, that if you could put people in a room, virtual reality, I mean, there's some incredible tech out there at the moment. And just had them receive various versions of a no, various versions of people who were disengaged, not interested. If you could train them for that, it's like it's like wearing a weights vest when you run. You take that weights vest off and watch them fly. You could train people for a no, but we don't. We train people for yeses. We don't train for no's. And so I think that that distinction is is one of the most powerful distinctions. If you want to really take your influence to another level, train for the no's. Train for the train for the disengaged. With, let's just talk to the art. So you're obviously, you're a master in nonverbal cues. And and when I first heard that, I, I thought, okay, nonverbal, I think I know what those are. I think I do. And then I heard you use this beautiful description of it for anybody who wants to know what that means. And it was this word pentimento that you used. And I checked the pronunciation with you before we came on air to make sure that I got that right. Um, and pentimento being the the cracks in art when you when you see behind the actual artwork to what's behind it or what's underneath and the reason i loved that so much is that i've often had an issue with this word charisma that charisma is in the words or charisma is in the volume or charisma is in any of these kind of external factors because actually charisma presence and certainty is in the moments between the words it's how you hold yourself it's the energy that you bring. It's the gravity. It's how you breathe. And so I loved that, that it lives in the cracks. 
what what are those what are those cracks? What should we look for when we look for those? And Julie, on your website, you have a tremendous almost summary of everything you just said. And you said the right message at the right time delivered with authenticity. It's that authenticity that is what we've been hovering around in terms of being congruent, being an influencer, being, a, if you want to call it, um, charismatic. It, it's you got to be you with you. And so that crack that you're talking about actually came about by I was presenting in Rome and had some time off. And Gail and I were doing a tour of the Sistine Chapel and our guide uh, speaking in English looked over at um, a section of the building and it was roped off. And he said, we can't go there because they're doing the pentimento repair. And I went, boy, my ears peaked up and I said, that's not Latin. I don't know what that word means. And what they said was... When you have the original sketch on a canvas or on a wall, a fresco, and then you start adding to it the different layers, you probably will never see the original drawing. But if the surface of the painting starts to crack, you can look underneath and see where it all comes from. Now, some dictionaries will indicate that pentimento means regret. You wish you had done it a different way. I stole the idea of pentimento in the world of art and moved it over into the world of communication. And I think we pay attention so much to the content, we don't pay attention to the process. So the process are the four nonverbal categories of what do you do with your eyes, your voice, your body, and breathing. So I called the study of nonverbal communication pentimento because it's the hidden beneath the actual verbiage. And just getting such a sense while you're talking there of how fearful we find that, that somebody will see beneath the veneer, the polished picture that we have beautifully crafted over over years, like the Sistine Chapel, and see the original, like very tentative, shaky, unsure drawing, pencil drawing underneath. And But that is as well as being a crack, that's where it, that's where it's at. Like that, when you get to see that, that's when you, that's when influence kicks in. That's when we connect with a human being in every single layer of our being. What, how do we, how do we open up to that? How do we, how, I, I mean, I, I have no idea the answer to this question. How do we open up to the point where we're like, you know, that's, there's the crack right there. And, you know, I can own that and I can move through it with power. I, I can make space for it. Yeah, space is a good word. I, I would recommend, and this parallels with what you're talking about, people will often ask, Michael, before you go on, what do you do to prepare yourself? Well, sometimes it's actual behind the screen. It's doing push-ups. If the larger the group, the more I have to have more energy. And therefore, I will literally artificially increase the metabolism in my body by doing push-ups. But more mentally, what I do before I do anything, including writing a book, doing a speech, I try to ask myself, what is more important to me, to me, than being successful at what I'm about to do? Then the no's don't matter as much. And I have to make sure I know what that is. The center is going to be Gail. 
her, and I'm going to use Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. Her acceptance of me means that fame and failure are equal imposters. That they, you can't get to me. You can't get to me. And if you can't get to me, so I'm me empowering myself. And now I can go out and do that. And that can live anywhere, right? That could live in your religion. That can live in your relationships. That could live in the mentors and the coaches that you surround yourself with. That could live in your family. I mean, that could live anywhere. And you, that that idea of you know, I I own all, I own all of this. I own all of this. I own the veneer and the crack and all that because my why is strong enough that I that that there's. I am willing to showcase my imperfections to get this done because it is that important to me. I think the fact of my background <clears throat> being so inadequate as a student, there was no way I could hide. And uh, most people go through life saying, I don't think they'll find out. I'm going, <laughs> I know they're going to find out. I'm going, no, they're going to find out. So then I'm comfortable with that. Where most people haven't accepted, you know, the imposter syndrome. If they ever found out, they would not allow me to do what I'm doing. I'm going, no, you allow me to do what I'm doing. That's your decision. Mine is I'm going to do it. And that owning of, I often talk about, you know, the difference between confidence, which I could talk about, but never arrives. And certainty is when you have the ability to stop still and go, today, I give you the best that I've got. Where all my mistakes, where every single part of my journey, where everything that I know, where it's brought me today, I give you this wholeheartedly. And tomorrow, I'm going to learn something new. A new piece of information is going to come my way and I will adapt. I will pivot. I will change my mind unashamedly, unapologetically. But today, I do you no service unless I give you the best that I have because what I have is important to what you're trying to achieve or what we're trying to achieve. And that certainty, oh, you know, that bypasses confidence any day of the week. Yeah. We, we know that there's a nobility in terms of effort. I want to just park that for a second and move, um, move into a question I got asked recently. It was by um, somebody in professional services and it, it was a man. And he said, you know, I'm finding that I get interrupted a lot. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put my point of view across and people are jumping in and, and jumping on top of me. And, and he said, I don't know how to jump back into the conversation. I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure. And I wanted, there's something that you said around talking during another person's exhale, because I wasn't quite sure how to answer the, his question. And I thought, okay, there, there's a tool. And I wanted to get it in this conversation because I think it's such a valuable tool can you walk us through that talking during another person's exhale in those moments where we, we can't seem to figure out how to how to get back into a conversation? Right. Right. And one of the things we can understand about communication when you're on a stage and communication when you're one on one or on a committee, they have some similarities that are transferable. And the number one thing I recommend if you want to be a good communicator is learn to talk with your hands. The second thing you have to learn is how to pause. But when you are talking, if you drop your hands back towards your body, you're signaling for other people that you're done with what you're saying. 
and that's when they talk. Whereas if you talk with your hands and you have your hand frozen during your pause, your frozen hand indicates to the other parties, you're not done yet. You're not done yet. So you're going to find that there are some things that are transferable in all communication realms. And one of them is when you pause and you have to pause, make sure your hand is frozen wherever it is. The backup to that is if you don't have permission to say what you're saying, you have to ask yourself, who does? And then you have to have that person be the liaison. Mm. Which goes back to that permission part that you were mentioning. Sure. Just raise a teenager. And you'll have to encounter permission at least once a week. Talk to me about the concept of decontamination. If locations have memories, if you're in a location and something happens that doesn't work well, try to stay away from that spot until you can clean it up. That's why for me, when I'm a uh, motivational speaker, I'm on for a very short amount of time and I'm just trying to do emotional stories and try to shift their mental mindset. If I'm a trainer, I'm usually with people a longer length of time. It's a, usually a smaller group of people, and therefore I'll put two flip charts on the stage with me. If I'm over at one and something happens, it doesn't go well, then I will stay away from that flip chart because that flip chart's contaminated, and I'll stay over at the other one. The other reason why I love two flip charts, if the crowd is small enough so that they can see what I'm writing, is that when I am in one half of the stage, say over to the left side of the stage where the flip chart is, and there's a question that comes out, I can't, if I'm going to keep eye contact with that person, I can't see the other side of the stage, the, the audience. I'm lost. So then I will intentionally, when I do get a question, I will go to the other flip chart to answer it so I peripherally can see the whole room while I'm making eye contact with the person who's asked me the question. And that, what does that enable you to do? If I can't see the group, I can't go to the art of communication. I'm doing a one-on-one -on -one communication in front of a group. And that to me is what happens in committee meetings. It, it dissolves into someone hijacking and the person in charge trying to manage that hijacker. If you can always keep in mind, how does the group see the situation? And in my philosophy, the group is more important than the individual if we're not functional. But if we're functional, then the individual is just as important as the, as the group is. So looping that back to what we were talking about before, which kind of interruption-based and that concept of the hijacker, which which I love because we've all been in those rooms. We've all been in, we've all been in rooms where... There's there's a squeaky wheel where somebody continually makes comments or asks what seem like irrelevant questions, constant hijacking of the narrative of the energy of the room. How do we as leaders, how do we handle those hijacking moments? You have to figure out who your clients are. If you're brought into a group that is dysfunctional, then you could care less if you have permission from them. But you do care less that you have permission from the person who brought you in. If you come into a group and the group is operating functional at the moment, then you do care if you have permission from them. So you have to please don't buy in that permission is the end on be all. You have to first figure out functionality, then bring in the concept of permission. And it makes a lot more sense. You you had a definition on, on one of your videos as a lead of a leader of leadership of a leader. 
and a leader being anyone who influences other people. And whether you're a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a mentor, a manager, a CEO, I, I loved that definition. And you backed it up by this phrase, if you can't give solutions, your role is to give sanity. And it, it just summed up the whole of the last year for me. Because from the majority of us in leadership positions, there were no there was no obvious solutions. We didn't know what was coming. We didn't know how we were going to handle it. We we were literally paving the road as we walked it. And that that whole mind frame flip of it's not my job here in this moment to to hand out solutions. It's my job to provide sanity. What what does that look like when I go in with that intention? My role here is to provide sanity. What are the behaviors I'm checking there? You're checking on whether they're breathing or not breathing. And, and what you're going to find is when, when people are breathing very high, they will tend to have jerky movement with their hands. If they're breathing low, they have fluid movement. So if they're moving, you can actually watch when they walk into the room. If you listen to them in terms of verbal, when someone is breathing low, like a telephone conference, and you can't see them, if they're breathing low, they will find the words that they're trying to use in their sentence. If you hear an increase in um, uh, called fillers, then they're breathing way, way too high. So then the third category is, well, what if they're not moving? What if they're not talking? How do I determine if they're breathing low or breathing high? If the person is just reposed, then you have to make sure you understand the difference between what is called stillness and stiffness. Stiffness is, is a frozen and a, a stillness is more like they're meditating. Now, what you're going to find is sometimes in order to read the audience, you have to do something such as a movement on your own to trigger them in terms of what they're doing. And then, you know, so an easy way of thinking about it is this whether it be one other person, a committee, or an entire audience. If people are breathing low, you have high permission. If people are breathing high, you have low permission. So it's really nice to understand what is your level of permission and do you care if you have permission? So you walk into a room, you're aware that your role here is to provide some sanity. You walk in and you can... Is it a feeling? Is, I'm just, I'm imagining walking into a room. You know, sometimes you do, it is a feeling. Sometimes you walk into a room and you think this room is is either nervous, jacked up, distracted. But sometimes you don't get a read until you start as to where as to where the room is at. What, what, once you figure out that this room isn't exactly where they need to be, how do you shift them? Uh, the question is, you may not have permission to, and you've got to accept that. If you go back to the external definition of permission that I have to get results, you only have one definition of success. You don't have the other. You've got to make sure you have two definitions of success. How did I do based on the level, the level of permission I had? Now, I think your other question is that, well, let's say I do have permission. How do I give sanity instead of solutions? And this is where you almost are bordering on the line of going into, if I may, um, Brene Brown and vulnerability. But I would strongly suggest to our listeners, please 
appear competent before you're vulnerable. If you go in vulnerable and you're not competent yet, you have not given them sanity. You've added to their insaneness because you're my leader based on your position, your location in the room, and you're not certain either. Whoa. But if I come across first as being competent, then it's okay. Then it's okay. It's really interesting. You mentioned Brene there because I was actually watching an interview with her last night um, before I went to bed. And something that she said that just, you know, adds beautifully to what you just mentioned is she said, you know, the line between self-acceptance and complacency. And she said, you know, that line for me is as a CEO, as a leader, my first commitment is to excellence. She said, excellence and beauty. Those are my, those are the two values we hold, we hold firmly. And she said, you better believe I'm not messing around with that. So she leads with that. You know, you better believe I'm not messing around here. My commitment is to excellence. She said, and then, then you go to, and, you know, we are ordinary humans trying to do something extraordinary and we have permission for our ordinariness because unless we give that permission, the extraordinary becomes exponentially harder. And so just to bring that, that beautiful, I thought beautiful framing into what you just said there, which is you start with exactly right. You start with your competency, start with your commitment and then move into the sanity (laughs) where I can't help but ask is, is kind of one of my final questions. Where do you, where do you see all this going? You know, we, we've, we've gone through a period of time where we've moved from face to face communication to video communication, where we had an hour or a full day sometimes with other human beings to 20 minute grabs where the stories that we're exposed to on Netflix and Amazon, the amount of time that we're spending with those stories has raised the bar, um, as to how, you know, compelled we expect to be in a short period of time where as, as communicators, as leaders, where do you see that taking us and the skills that we need? I've never found that um, using my crystal ball or anyone else's crystal ball has been very helpful. Uh, so I'm going to pass on that question. Uh, but what I would uh, reframe it as when you don't know where it's going, what do you do with yourself? And so if I could reframe it, if that's okay, Julie. Absolutely. I love that question. And so I think it comes back to as influencers, you've got to be certain on who you are for you to provide sanity to someone else. We had a family member situation where they moved um, a a thousand kilometers using distant uh, measurement of Australia. And they settled in and thought it was going to be a great promotion. And their industry just fell apart. This is pre-COVID, by the way. And it was amazing to watch the breadwinner come home, assemble the family of, you know, the partner and two sons and look at them and just say at the dinner table, I got fired today. Big, long pause, big, long pause. And then he says, I have no idea what we're going to do and made eye contact in silence with each member without blinking, which is really hard to do because you have to rehearse it. But if you're not blinking, you are so congruent. So blinking indicates you're thinking of something else. There's an additive that you are going to. But a non-blink is so powerful. And then he said, but we're going to be okay because we're together. And man, what that's that's sanity without solution. Yeah. That moment where you can find you can find that line. 
between what you know, what you don't know, what you're committed to, and, and what you still got to figure out. Well, that just leads me beautifully onto my last question, which was you you said this line once that I actually wrote down, and it was, I wonder if there is a school of unlearning. I wonder, and it just struck me, I wonder if there was a school, wow, there should, why is there not a school for unlearning? Oh my goodness, I would go. Um, so let's just look at that concept. If you were to design a school for unlearning, what's the number one thing that would be on the curriculum? What's the one, number one thing that you feel like most of us need to unlearn to be more powerful communicators, presenters, leaders? To get outside yourself. Uh, you, you've got to have the ability to, um, you know, it's, it's what Pascal, the French mathematician, and sometimes his name is used in computerese, uh, he, he said, the hardest thing is for a human being to sit by themselves and be at peace. So that's that's where I would start with, whether that be in prayer, meditation, exercise, yoga, but some way to just still yourself. And you can be running and still still yourself. Um, mathematically or statistically, it's at about the 20 minute when you're jogging. And at my age, it's safer for me to walk than it is to run. So I do I do lots of walks. And I have a dog that uh, if he gets heavy, I know that I haven't been exercising because he comes with me. And I live next door, I'm very blessed, to a um, 350 square acre park. So state park. And I just walk the trail. It takes about an hour to do it. And it's just really, really cool. And I am different because of that. So the starting of on learning is settle yourself. And to do that, oftentimes you have to get outside yourself and just go, what's going on? Can I slow down enough to watch what's going on? And then can I go slow down inside? And so I find that going visual third point with myself, like if I'm worried, write it down. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely demand of myself, there's nothing on the bedstead. That's got to be just a novel that is high fiction, nothing that is electronic. I want to make sure that it's just pleasant. It is absolutely just fantasy. And so a lot of times I'll read the sports page in bed because I pretend I own a lot of athletic teams and I have to make major decisions. And what I'm doing is I'm setting myself up for a great sleep because I'm not in the world of reality. I want to be in the world of fantasy. And then when I wake up, I'll come back to the world of reality. Well, thank you. Thank you for thank you for your time. I, it's been such a pleasure again to meet you after all these years of of hearing your name and hearing about the amazing work that you do out there in the world. Julie, I love what you're doing. Is you know you're taking the thought leaders and making it a bigger membership. You're giving them the insights and the secrets of being an influencer, authenticity, charisma. You're cool. Thank you. I'm going to take that. I'm cool. It's not, it's not frequently I hear those words. So I'm, I'm going to take that with me into my day. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, 
or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.